All right, amen. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, whether you're in the lobby or online or in here. Welcome if you're new. We're in a series called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. You can type to, turn to Song of Solomon chapter 6. I'm going to meet you there in a few minutes. Um, as we start here, if you're new or maybe you've been coming around for a while, you're like, okay, we're in this series. It's on a whole, you know, Hebrew poetic poetry book from 3,000 years ago called Song of Solomon. And, and we've had a lot of topics, right? We've talked about dating and engagement and singleness and uh, attraction and manhood and womanhood. But really, for the last few weeks, We've been talking about one main topic and different elements and dimensions of that topic, and that is marriage, right? So really, this whole book's kind of about marriage. It's a man and a woman and what led to their marriage. It's the beginning of their marriage and the wedding ceremony. It's uh, the wedding night, and that's the beginning of their marriage as well, intimately and physically. And, and then it's the conflict and communication and difficulty that happens in marriage. And then today, we're going to be talking about just like, what are the lifelong principles of a flourishing marriage? And you might go, why are we talking about marriage so much? And that's a fair question. Well, I, I can tell you what I told you before. Yes, marriage is a big deal in the Bible. But here's what I want you to understand, that marriage is foundational to all society and civilization. Now, why is that? It's because of what marriage produces. What does marriage produce? Kids, right? So everybody's invested in marriages, and we know that you can't have a healthy church without healthy marriages. You can't have a healthy city without healthy marriages. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about marriage one last time today. And I, here's, here's my concern, that many of you, or maybe at least some of you feel like, if you're honest, and this is a terrible thing to say out loud, but you might feel like I'm miserably married. I think the longer somebody is married, the more easy it is. They would never say this out loud because it's a terrible thing they'll say out loud, but they might say something like this. I feel like I'm done enjoying our marriage. We're in year five or seven or 10 or 20. I'm done enjoying, I just have to endure. Or you get 10 or 15 years into marriage and you go, I don't... This isn't thriving, this is surviving. And so people stay miserably married and that's not the picture I want you to have. So here's the picture, if you want like, what is the picture of marriage in the Bible? What is the picture of long-term marriage? You can write this down if you look at it later, I'm not gonna go there. Psalm 128. What's Psalm 128? It's this old couple who's still in love around a big dining room table with their children and their children's children. It's this beautiful picture of being old, wrinkled, and in love still, and having your children and your grandchildren. Now, here's my concern. Many people are miserably married. Now, why do people stay married? You may want to ask that question. What, like, what are this? We know the primary motivations, right? We should stay married because it glorifies God. It's good for us, all that kind of stuff. But why do people honestly stay married? Well, I think there, I thought about this a lot this week. I think there are at least three reasons. Uh, people stay married first because of the social pressure, right? And, and by the way, that's not, these, are, these can be secondary motivations, I don't, what my parents would think, what my friends would think, what my church would think. These are real. By the way, God made you susceptible to peer pressure. You need to know that. So why we're like, hey, get in a community group. Hey, you know, come to our weekend or hey, have strong Christian friends. Why? Because well, you're going to be susceptible to peer pressure. You just need to decide, well, who, what kind of, is it going to be good peer pressure? Is it going to be bad peer pressure? What am I going to do? Um, th but this is what happens. So people feel like I can't get divorced because of all of the social pressure. So then people begin to fantasize. I've heard stories of people who wish their spouse would die in a car accident. I know you, well, I'm just telling you where people go. Because they go, well, I can't get out of this unless my spouse dies. I know I can't get divorced. It would be sure nice if they didn't exist anymore. The second reason that people stay married is kids, obviously. This is why you'll see people who, you know, here it is, you know, the, the youngest kid goes to college and what happens to mom and dad? Mom and dad get divorced because they never had a Christ-centered home they had a child-centered home. This happens a lot of times with older women, right? As soon as their kids go away, they start going, when am I getting grandkids? And there's some good desires in that, but, but the negative of that is, hey, a child has always been the center of my life and of my home. I don't know how to function without a child being the center. I don't know how to relate to my husband without the child being the center. So quickly give me another child. And the third reason that people don't get divorced, obviously, is money. It's very, very expensive to get divorced. If you don't have a lot of money, it'll cost you tens of thousands of dollars. If you have a lot of money, it'll cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you'll spend two to three years in divorce court and you'll feel like you have a headache the entire time. And so what I want us to do is I want to help us. I think of all the messages in this series, and this is my third time preaching it now, <laughs> uh, but, and I've gotten this feedback, it's the most practical. And the, the, here's what I want to help us have. How do you have a fruitful and flourishing marriage long-term? 
where you enjoy and you don't just endure, where you thrive and you don't just survive. Here's the, here's the big idea if you have to leave early, okay? Here's what we're going to talk about the rest of the time, that your marriage, maybe it's your marriage now, it's going to be your future marriage, because most of you, if you're not married, you're going to get married. Your marriage must be built on the things that do not change. Clearly. Think about that for five minutes, it'll make sense. Your marriage has to be built on the things that do not change. Okay, well, there's a lot of things that do change. In fact, here's, a, here's an interesting thought for you to have. In your spouse, whoever your spouse is, okay, in that one person across your life, you'll have many partners. You'll have many different partners in that one person. My wife has been married to a 25-year-old. She's been married to a college minister. She was married to a church planner. She's been married to a guy who has one kid, a guy who has two kids, and a guy who has three kids. Guess what? It's all been me. <laughs> That's right, yes. So it, this is what happens, and you have to understand this. And then here's, you, most people don't understand this until they get married. Marriage is so significant, it changes both the husband and the wife when they enter it, immediately. So people will say things all the time, which I understand. Hey, everything was great, and then we got married. Well, of course. Because what happened is marriage was so significant of an institution where you made lifelong covenantal vows. And so you've been changed as soon as you enter it. Okay, so then, then you become a mom, and then you become a dad, and then you have illness, and then you have injury, and then your personality changes. And then your career changes, and all of these things change. So you know this as soon as I say it. Your marriage has to be built on the things that do not last. I'm going to give you four of them today. Here's the first. Your marriage has to be built... Um, or your marriage has to be built on the things that do not change. And um, here's the, here's, let me give you the first one. It's this. Your marriage has to be built on forgiveness, not feelings. Forgiveness, not feelings. Now, what we saw last time is their first fight. As we get to chapter six, and Spencer did a great job last week, as we get to chapter six, we're, we're, we're watching that fight, and we're watching the other side of it as they make up, as they have reconciliation, and as they reunite together. So I want you to look at me at chapter six, verse four. That's where we're going to pick up. We're going to cover a lot of material tonight this morning. Um, here's what it says. He says this, you are beautiful as tears of my love. So he's going to speak even though he's been sinned against. And you can argue he also sinned against her because he was passive in his own way, going away and being by himself and not dealing with it at first. Now they're having, now they're having uh, reconciliation. You are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. So here's how you can work on forgiveness, not feelings, okay? You have to... When you're in conflict, or just in general in your marriage, you need to separate, and this is so hard to do, especially some of your personalities and temperaments, this is like, feels like almost impossible to do. You have to separate emotions from decisions. Right? I mean, okay, so there's six major emotions. Anger, sadness, happiness, surprise, fear, and disgust. That's it. Now, you, now they show up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different ways in your life. Those are the six major emotions. And you're, you've got to, and we're just going to—we're giving us language today so that we can all do this, and you can have conversations together as a spouse or as a couple. You have to learn how to not be overly dependent on how you feel. First of all, how you feel may not be real. Think about that for a while. But what happens is, here's what happens a lot of times, and that can happen to men or women. They get these emotions, right? And like, then there's angry you, right? And there's sad you. It's like a subpersonality. It's like a whole different you. And, and it's it's you to the exclusion of everything else in your life. By the way, what do you call somebody? who gets overwhelmed by one emotion to the exclusion of all other emotions and rational thought. A toddler. <laughs> that is technically, a toddler is a smaller, more simple version of you. That's what a toddler is. And so you'll see this all the time with your toddlers. Like, okay, they're overwhelmed with, with, with being sad or they're overwhelmed with being happy. And all other emotions and all other rational thinking goes out the door, that can't happen. So you can have desires that are negative but you can make still decisions that are positive, obviously. You just have to commit beforehand. Hey, I'm, I'm going to be the kind of person. So here's the first decision. I'm going to treat myself and my spouse as a sinner who needs God's grace. So there's this, I don't know what books you read, blogs you, you know, read, and podcasts you listen to, but if you've been in any kind of Christian circle, you'll hear phrases like gospel-centered. Is this church gospel-centered? Is your marriage gospel-centered? Is your parenting gospel-centered? Well, let me just give you the litmus test to the extent that you view yourself as a sinner who needs God's grace, and you view yourself, your spouse as a sinner who needs God's grace, to that extent, your marriage is gospel-centered. So when my spouse sins against me, I'm not shocked. That's what sinners do. Sinners sin. I'm not surprised. I'm eager and quick to forgive. When I'm struggling with a sin, I want to confess it. 
because I know my spouse is going to treat me as a sinner who needs God's grace. I'm not surprised when I sin and I need grace, and so I'm going to have that conversation. So that's the fundamental and foundational decision is I'm going to separate emotions and decisions the best I know how. Maybe I need some space. You'll have to talk about that. Maybe we need 30 minutes. Maybe we need some time. Maybe I need to journal. And the first decision is I'm going to be a sinner who needs God's grace, relating to everybody else in my house, especially my spouse, as a sinner who needs God's grace. The second commitment is I'm going to deal with things face to face. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Now, this means that they have a face to face marriage. I want you to understand that that marriage needs to be face to face, shoulder to shoulder. That's a good summary of marriage. What are you doing for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years? Shoulder to shoulder, face to face. Well, what is all of dating? Face to face. What pushes you toward marriage? Face to face, right? In fact, I've seen this so many times. When does face to face become shoulder to shoulder? Engagement. As soon as the ring goes on and and the questions popped, it's, it's, well, okay, what's our budget? Shoulder to shoulder immediately. Not a bad thing, it needs to be. Who gets invited? How big's the, the bridal party? Are we merging bank accounts? Which bank? Where are we living? Who's working how much? Where's the honeymoon? These are all shoulder-to-shoulder questions. Now, here's what happens. I see this all the time. You have to work very, very hard for this not to happen. 5, 10, 15 years, you had multiple careers, you had multiple kids. All of a sudden, you wake up one day, and you're shoulder-to-shoulder, and you're no longer face-to-face. And I'll meet with couples. I'll have dinner with couples. I'll be hanging out with couples, and I'll just be thinking to myself, they don't talk to each other. It'll be so obvious because he'll be sharing something or she'll be sharing something and the shock and surprise on the other spouses. Uh, oh, they're hearing this for the first time too. Oh, that's because they don't talk to each other. And you go, well, how does that happen? Well, it, as a couple, you have to relate and relax with one another. What's easier to do? Relax, obviously. It's like, well, it's, it's like, okay, well, every night we sit and we read on our iPad separately or we watch five episodes of Breaking Bad. Well, fair enough. But what you did there is you, it's okay, but you, you relax, you didn't relate. What happens over multiple years? Oh yeah, we really know how to be together. No, you know how to relax together. You know how to be in the same room and not talk to one another. That's not a long-term strategy. All of a sudden, you're not celebrating things, you're not sharing hard times, you're not thinking narratives. So you have to have this face, the face-to-face means this, I'm not texting to, to deal with my conflict. If I can, I'm not talking about this on the phone, we wanna have a face, I'm not talking to other people about this. It's the decision, I'm a sinner who needs God's grace, and it's the decision we're going to have face-to-face contact about this. Look what he says. Um, Chapter 6, verse 5. I'll read this quickly, but basically he repeats to her after the conflict the very same things he said on the night of her honeymoon. In in fact, when I read this, you're going to go, Kyle, you just read this in chapter 4. It's almost the exact same thing. So here's the principle. Even after hard times, you need to reaffirm your love for one another. In, in a very specific way. He's going to say the same things he said the night of their honeymoon, the special romantic night. He's gonna say them years later after much conflict. Here's what he says. Your hair is like the flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like the flock of ooze or ewes that come up from the washing. All of them bears twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Then he summarizes it in verse eight. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, virgins without number. He compares her to other women and says she's better than them all. So queens would be powerful women, concubines would be sexually available women, virgins would be young women, okay? Which makes us ask one question about Solomon. How could Solomon write the book on commitment? (laughs) I mean, I've been asked that question and it's a fair question multiple times. It's like, is this a joke? Solomon wrote Song of Songs? You know, on, on a monogamous marriage of lifelong commitment, of chastity before marriage and fidelity in marriage, Solomon wrote this? And here's the answer to that the best we can see. We believe this is Solomon, and it's his early in his life, and he's writing about his first marriage. And it's his first love. And we're told in 1 Kings later that his heart drifted from the Lord. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, all it is is a sad story of an old man with lots of regret. So this is the ideal, which unfortunately, because of sin in his own life, did not become real in his own life. But we have the written down word of God of what the ideal is. So he's saying this. He's saying you're better than all of the other women. Look, he he says this. My dove, verse nine, my perfect one, my only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. So you have to make multiple decisions. I'm gonna be a sinner who needs God's grace. We're gonna deal with this face to face. Here's the other commitment. You're going to be the priority for me. Now, again, I'm gonna have to stereotype a little bit, but here's how most marriages go. About five or seven or 10 years in, if not sooner, 
the husband begins to feel like for the wife, the priority is the kids. That's where her attention goes. That's where all her energy goes. That's where all her planning goes. And the wife, if she's honest, what she'll often feel is like, okay, for the husband, the priorities really work. He travels a lot. He's gone all the time. He works when he's home. He's more excited about that. And so you have to go, you have to ask this question. This is not an easy question to answer. How do I live my life? This is a biblical question. How do I live my life in such a way that it honors God, is good for me, and good for those I love across time? There's not many answers to that. Let me ask that question again. How do I live in such a way that's good for me, honors God, it's good for me, it's good for my spouse, it's good for my kids, it's good for everybody I love, and it works over decades? Well, we know the answer to that. The priority has to be God, then spouse, then kids, then church, then work, then hobbies. That has to be the order. I don't have time, I don't have enough time for me to unpack all that. You just have to journal about that for about 30 minutes and you realize, well, that's the only order that can happen. Because the only way I can love my wife and she'll feel, or my husband and he'll feel, or she'll feel protected is to know that I have a higher authority that I'm submitting to, that I myself am a husband or wife under authority. Well, the only way the kids are gonna feel really safe, what parents do is they basically create a simple life for their kids to grow up in. And, and one of the things that they do is they create a very safe environment for their kids. And the safety is the love and warmth and connection of the mom and the dad. And so I tell my kids all the time, I love God most, mom second most, you guys are tied for third. <laughs> and they always come back and they're like, uh, they, each of them individually by themselves when no one else is around, dad, I'm really third, right? Can they be fourth, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then church, because that's your meaningful family connection, and then work, right? Because what does work do? It's like, you know, some of you will have careers, most of you will have jobs. And a job is something you wouldn't do if someone wasn't paying you. That's the definition of a job. Some of you will be blessed enough you'll get to have a career. That's great. But if you're rightly oriented in the world, you'll realize, wait a second, my career is there to serve my spouse and to serve my kids. And, and if things are not good at home, it doesn't matter how they're going anywhere else. And then you figure out long-term how you fit your hobbies in there. And you can usually have one or two hobbies, maybe, if you're going to have meaningful responsibility. And they normally need to be engrafted and enfolded into your life and are usually something also the spouse and the kids are a part of to some element degree. That's your priorities. He's saying, he's saying, babe, it's been a while. I want you to know you're my number one priority after God. Then he says this. Uh, the young women, verse 9, uh, part 2, the young women saw her. So this is interesting. He's going to talk about other women to, uh, to his wife, but he's only going to say the positive things the other women say about her. So one thing that guys can do, and I'm sure ladies do it as well, but guys can be foolish and they can tell their wife something great another woman's doing. You know, I really wish you'd work out like she does. I'd wish you'd keep the house clean like she does. I'd wish you'd homeschool like she does. I wish you'd go to work like she does. And all of a sudden I feel like, okay, I'm being compared to everybody else. What he does is very wise. He says, okay, here's all the great things other ladies are saying about you. So here's what he says. The young women saw her and they called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So he says all these great things. She gets very excited. And if, we, if you'll skip down to chapter 7, verse 1, they head back to the bedroom. Now, this is not a second sermon on sex. But, but this is the final time that there's intimate language of the two of them together. And, and I want to give you the principle that we're going to see in chapter 7. So the principle in chapter 6 is we have to have forgiveness, not feelings. And we do that by deciding that we're going to make decisions even when our emotions are of the opposite. Obviously very simple, but not very easy. The second principle is this. We have to focus on friendship, not the physical. Now, is the physical important? Obviously, to some level and degree, there needs to be physical attraction. Whenever a lady says, how, important, how attracted should I be to the guy that I'm marrying? My answer is, well, you're going to have to look at him. <laughs> and your kids are going to look like him, Okay. But after that, I mean, there's, you know, it, it, it's an element, but it's diminishing across time. We've talked about that. And so, so he says, okay, so you, here's how we know. You just have to think about this. All these things, you just have to, we don't spend time thinking about things. But all you have to do is think about why friendship over the physical. Well, first of all, the physical is fading. Time and gravity are going to get the best of all of us. Now, some of you have better genetics. You eat more kale. <laughs> You have more discretionary income and you can nip it and tuck it and tan it and paint it and lift it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but, but, but like you do that for 10 or 15 or 20 years and you look like the Joker from Batman, okay? 
And everybody looks at you and goes, okay, they didn't understand what, they didn't understand beautiful, they settled for pretty. And there's an obsession with youth. And so, okay, so basically at the end of the day, it's like we know we can't focus on the physical, we, have, we know we have to focus on friendship. Now here's the another interesting thing about friendship. Friendship, technically, biblically, is the first purpose of marriage. You know that because if you read Genesis 2, but yes, sex is talked about, but not till after friendship. I will make him a helper. That's the language of friendship and companionship suitable for him. Later we're told sex, later we're told kids, later we're told picture of Christ in the church. So there's lots of purposes for marriage, but the fundamental purpose is friendship. Now this is what our ancestors, this is what the Christians of the past always knew. Why does marriage exist? Because life is too hard for one person. That's, that's the most simple way to say it. Ask the single mom how easy it is to raise kids by yourself. It's very, very hard. Illness and injury, sickness and suffering, it's just jobs come and go. It's very, 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 very hard for one person to make it through life by themselves. Now, our single brothers and sisters, we, we have a church family, we have our parents, we have our siblings, we have other things, but for most people, it's going to be your spouse, and it's this deep level of companionship. So what's gonna happen in chapter seven is, in chapter four, he talked about her whole body, and he started at her head and went to her, her, her feet. This time, he's gonna start at her feet and go up to her head, and he's gonna talk about her. Most people think they've been married for years now, she's older, he's older, but he still finds her beautiful. Look, look what he says, if you look at me at um, chapter seven, verse one, he says this, how beautiful are your feet in sandals. Ladies, if you needed a verse on sandals or having more sandals or having more shoes, there it is right there. <laughs> How beautiful are your feet in sandals, oh noble daughter. Now this is interesting. So what he's going to say is he's gonna talk about our feet, which again, we're modern people. We're culturally situated. We don't realize that historically feet have been considered ugly. I know today people get pedicures and they paint their toenails and they wear cute shoes and they put rings on their toes or whatever they do, you know, and everybody thinks, you know, feet are beautiful. Well, back then, feet were, feet have always been considered historically as the, the most creaturely element of humans, that which connects them to the earth. And basically, it's that which gets dirty. I mean, so most people wore sandals. They walked everywhere all day in the dirt. They got animal poop all over them. This is why when the apostle Paul says, how beautiful are the feet, of those who bring good news. What is he doing? He said, I'm gonna call something considered ugly beautiful because of what those things do. This is why when Jesus washes the disciples' feet in first century, you're like, I can't believe he's doing that. That's the grossest, ugliest, most creaturely part of the human body. See, what you do as a spouse to your spouse is you get to see parts of them no one else gets to see. You get to see the worst of them. You get to see what often may make them feel insecure. He sees something that culturally she could have been very insecure about her feet. And he starts there and says they're very beautiful. And then he moves up. Look what he says next. We're still in verse one. He says this, your rounded thighs. Now this was back before bathing suits and swimming pools. So nobody is seeing her thighs except him. And so here's what he says. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Here, here's what happens. You get to see all of your spouse and some of everybody else. So you get to, so part of what we're doing in chapter seven is, he, we're gonna see this in a moment, he gets to see the most private parts of her. And she gets to see the most private parts of him. Now, of course, that's true sexually, but I'm talking relationally. I'm talking emotionally, right? We get to see all of our spouse, even the worst parts of them. Some of you have thought this before, like, well, you don't yell at anyone else like that. You don't withdraw like that to anybody else. You don't, you don't talk that directly to anybody. But I see parts of you that nobody else gets to see. This is, by the way, what happens is, we, again, I said this earlier, but it's worth re revisiting. We see all of our spouse, we see parts of everybody else. This is why, what, see, I, was, I read a lot this week on divorce, trying to understand it more. Read this divorce lawyer who said that what he's seeing in all his divorce cases is now the influence of social media. And he said, here's what's happening. One spouse is seeing somebody on social media from their past. And they show up on social media, and what do you see on social media? You see one dimension of their life. She's fit. He's rich. You see one, here's the dimension you see. The dimension they want you to see, obviously. And you see that dimension of their life and you're very attracted to that dimension of their life. You don't see what it costs to be that fit or 
what his marriage is like because he works so much to make that much. I mean, who knows? You don't see all those other elements, right? Your close friends, you might get to see three or four elements of their life. Your spouse is the only one that you get to see all of her or all of him. And then you have to make the decision when I see all of her or all of him, am I going to use what I know to hurt them or to help them? Am I going to know about her insecurities? Am I going to use that to heal or to harm? What I know about him, am I going to use that to minister to him because I could really speak into that or to manipulate that so I can do what I want to do? Those are the questions. So he talks about her feet, he talks about her thighs, and then he continues up. He says this, your navel, he's going right up the body, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. He's not talking about her belly button. He says this, he says, then he says, your, your belly is a heap of wheat encircled by lilies. He's not saying, it looks like you ate a lot of Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> Uh, what, is, what, is he, what is he doing there? So, so without getting into too much of the graphic detail there, it's actually more important to say what he compares them to. So he compares her body, which is comparing her to wheat and to wine. So those would be the two major Jewish festivals. So you have the festival of wheat and you have the festival of wine. The festival of wheat was where you said, God, thank you for meeting all my needs. See, today we think we get our food from Kroger <laughs> or Harris Teeter or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, whatever. It's like back then it's like they knew they got their food from God. And if God didn't meet, give them wheat, they wouldn't be able to have their most basic needs. Part of what you realize over time with your spouse is, she's what I needed. She's, he's what I needed. Yes, he drives me crazy a little bit. Or yes, she's always pointing out some things that I could change. And yes, we argue about a lot. But what would, would you want the opposite? Do you want somebody who just does whatever you want all the time? I mean, you would be bored with him in three weeks. You would be bored with her in three weeks. That's not a spouse, that's a slave. You want someone to contend with, you want someone to do life with, you want someone to sharpen you, you want someone to strengthen you. And so the hope is over time, counselors call this acceptance. It's the first move, I accept. I accept these things about my wife or my husband. Part of it is, and this is why I'll tell, when single people are, are, are dating, or you know, they're, uh, they're dating each other, a lot of times I'll say, do you see any red flags or yellow flags? Now, if it's a red flag, you, you may need to break the relationship off. If it's a yellow flag, well, I don't know if I love this about him or her. It's like, well, what if it never changes? Because it might not. And all marriage and money, all they do is amplify and magnify who you already are. Right? So when you get a lot of money, it's like, oh, I'm just seeing who you are because you're unhindered now, unhindered in that. And then when it comes to marriage, I'm just getting a closer picture of all the things that I saw earlier, and now they're expanded and enhanced as well. So you may need to ask, can I deal with this? So, so he says wheat, which is I, I accept you. I see that you're good for me. And then he says wine, which makes some Baptists uncomfortable. <laughs> and he says, you're wine. What is wine? Wine is you're, you're more than just what I need. You're what I desire. You're what I want. Right? This is why God actually, in Isaiah 55, God says, I'm water, I'm milk, and I'm wine. Water is what I need. you need to live. Milk's what you need to grow. Wine's what you need to enjoy. And so he's this beautiful picture of a great marriage is a marriage in which it, you realize your spouse is both wheat and wine. You find out what are the things that I need to accept about him because they're actually for my good and where over time are the areas that we can just enjoy together. So that's what he says. Then look here. Uh, verse, I won't read all this, but verses seven, or verse, chapter seven, verses three through five, he continues to talk about her body, he basically says the exact same things he said in chapter four. Uh, he summarizes all of it in, cha in chapter 7, verse 6. Look at this. He says this. He, this is a summary of her. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. He looks at the woman and he says, inwardly and outwardly, you are both beautiful and you are pleasant. Now, let me ask you this question, ladies, especially wives. Wives, are you pleasant, dot, 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 with your husband? Pleasant means likable. Warm, kind, and friendly. In the morning, are you a pleasant wife? When he comes home, are you pleasant? At night, are you pleasant? I know guys who are afraid to answer their phone when their wife calls. Like, oh, I don't know, who's, um, I don't know who she'll be on the other end of the phone right now. I don't know if I'm getting a nice phone call or I'm going to yell out about something I forgot with the kids. I don't know if I'm, you know, right? Most guys, they feel like every day when it comes to their wife, they spin the wheel. 
I'm praying for happy, I'm praying for happy, I'm praying for happy. <laughs> I also accept sweet or fun or warm, any of those. Oh, I got grumpy. Oh. <laughs> I got moody, I got grouchy, I got cold shoulder. Now, it's, it's back and forth, right? Because it's the guy, he's able to say such things that turns her into the type of person. It's that efficacious love who is beautiful, who is pleasant. And guys, we're easier to pick on because it, some of you men are so predictable. We know what we're going to get with you. Boring, <laughs> quiet, withdrawn. It's like it's, it's not a game. It's the same thing every day. And that's the problem. But in this beautiful marriage of the husband is speaking life into her, and, and, and at the same time, the wife is becoming more and more pleasant, which makes him even want to be with her more and say even more kind things, which makes her even more pleasant. And that's that beautiful cycle. So he goes on. If you continue in chapter 7, he says, uh, chapter, or chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are, with, are like its clusters. Verse 8, I say I will climb the palm tree, I will lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine the scent of your mouth like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. So here's what's interesting. This is the last time he's going to fully compliment her, and he says the most things, and it's later in life. So in chapter 4, he says seven things he loves about her. In chapter 7, he says 10 things he loves about her. The principle is the longer you're married, the more you should love your spouse, the more things there should be that you love about your spouse. So here's, at the deepest level, we've talked about the deep things. You're a sinner who needs God's grace, okay? They're a sinner who needs God's grace. At the most practical level, let me tell you, I think, I'm making up a number. I feel like 75% of marriages that are not, I'm not talking about the worst case marriages that have so complex and convoluted in all of their brokenness, but I'm talking about most marriages could be fixed with an, affirmate, with a, uh, a, an environment of encouragement and an atmosphere of affirmation. So, for example, that's all this book is. There's constant encouragement one to the other. There's constant, not flattery, but genuine affirmation of one to the other. Yeah, I've told you this before, partly as a warning, I'm not a great counselor, okay? So whenever I do marriage counseling, I do it some. I mostly do premarital counseling, and, and sometimes there's issues even in as, as people, couples are getting engaged and, and get, heading toward marriage. But I basically have a few plays in my playbook. Okay, that's it when it comes to counseling. Uh, but this one almost always works, which is, okay, hey, Sally and Bobby, you know, you're having problems. Here's what I want you to do. Bobby, I, I want you just for one minute here. I would like you to affirm all the things you love about Sally. Just for one minute, just start saying some things that you love about her. And what you realize is, oh my goodness, Bobby has not spent one minute affirming his wife in the last five years. So Bobby does that, it's a little awkward at first, and then he gets going, and you can actually see him doing it. And, you're like, oh, he's saying, and you can see her responding. Okay, Sally, your turn. You got just one minute. I want you, Sally, to say, just for one minute, just say some things that you love about Bobby. Well, guess what? Sally's not said anything for a minute. Sally's not praised Bobby for a minute for five years. So this is going to be a powerful minute. All of a sudden, Sally starts praising Bobby. And we go back just two or three times. And by the end of the session, they're walking out holding each other's hands. It's like, oh, we have just not had this culture of affirmation that we need in the home. John Grotman, one of the most famous family therapists, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, he did these massive studies. I think it was in the 90s. He, did, he took all these couples to bed and breakfast. And they knew they were going to be studied. He'd put them in this bed, big bed and breakfast. And um, <clears throat> he would watch marriages. And over time, he could basically tell with lots of accuracy if the marriage was going to make it. And he said, the number one marriage killer is contempt. We would say, a biblical phrase would be a root of bitterness toward the other spouse. Because he, and I don't know how he measured this, but he said, if you have contempt for your spouse, on average, you miss 50% of the good things they're doing. Wow. Maybe your spouse isn't doing that much good, but maybe you're missing half of it. And the other thing, side of it is then you begin, to see, you begin to see terrible things that aren't really even there. And so what we need is a culture of affirmation. We need an environment of encouragement in marriages. That's what this whole book is. This whole book is a love song of one, in, of one spouse encouraging the other, and then the other spouse encouraging the other, and then they have conflict, and it's time to encourage each other again. There's so, many, there's so much bad news out there. There's so many discouraging things in there. The home should be a place of encouragement, which leads to the third thing. So the first is that your marriage needs to be built on forgiveness, not feelings. You know that. The second uh, needs to be built on friendship, not physical. You know that. The third thing is it needs to be built on future grace, not past grievances. It needs to be built on future grace, not past grievances. Here's what grace is. Grace is tomorrow could be different because of Jesus. Grace is the Holy Spirit can change my heart and can change your heart. 
Grace is God is actively involved in our marriage. We don't have to be the same people we were yesterday. The grace of God is, I believe, in sanctification, that we are progressively and practically becoming more like Jesus. Now, what happens in marriages, and I see this all the time, please listen, some of you are in this for sure, is that once you're married, I make up a number, once you're married three, five, seven, ten years, whatever, it doesn't really matter, you start to have more bad memories than good memories. <laughs> this happens all the time. So, so, so one of the spouses says to the other spouse, uh, what do you want to do for the holidays? Well, we're not going to your house. I, every time we go to my in-laws, your parents, this happens. Well, then, you know, okay. then she maybe says, hey, well, I, I, let's, go, let's get away. Let's go on vacation for a couple of days. Just like last time when you were on your phone the whole time and you worked the whole time we were there? Well, babe, let's go on a, let's go on a date night. Every time we go on a date night, you talk the whole time. But you understand how toxic that is? I think 50% of marriages are more. They're just full of a lot of bad memories and then you're stuck. It's like, well, I, I would like to try something, but every time I bring it up, you, you just bring the bad memories up. And then every time you bring something up, all I do is bring up the bad memories. It's like, well, no one can live under that. You can stay married, but you're not gonna enjoy, you're only gonna endure. So the principle is you need to build in and make new memories. This is what they're doing, look at this. Chapter seven, verse 11, come my beloved. This is her speaking. Come, my beloved, chapter seven, verse 11. Let us go into the fields. Let us lodge in the villages. What is she saying? I need a vacation. That's it. That's what she's saying. We need a vacation. We know, statistically speaking, that women will feel this first. Women have a higher, as a general rule, a higher sensitivity to negative emotion. They will know when the relationship needs help first. So she says, babe, we need to get away just for a few days. Let's go up to Boone. Let's go over to Asheville. Let's just get away. Here's what it says. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and besides our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. So here's the hope that you don't have to focus on past grievances. You can believe in future grace. Here's what you need to do. This is very simple, but you need to create new memories. If you have a lot of bad memories with your spouse, then you need to create new memories. You do that two ways. What do we need to do together and where do we need to go together? Right? And you may, you may both need to, it's like, well, we don't like to do anything together. Well, then you're gonna both need to discover something new. Well, we've never played tennis. We'll try that together. Well, we've never picked up biking. We'll try that together. Well, there's a new restaurant we've never been to. We'll go to that one then. We need to do, you need to create new memories. You need to get away. You need to go on vacation. Now, listen, I know as soon as you talk about vacation, as soon as you, you know, it gets personal because some people go, well, I don't have enough money. I only have two weeks of vacation or whatever it is. Well, let me tell you this. Here's the principle. It's too expensive for you not to get away with your spouse. Because I've seen this before. Here's what happens. Everyone says they don't have money and they don't have time. Then their marriage falls apart. All of a sudden, they have time. I'm serious. Well, that's amazing. You didn't have any time for any of this, but you're able to spend $10,000 to fly you and your wife to Phoenix for intense therapy for a week. Suddenly, you found time. Suddenly, you found money. But now, you're in the, you're in the ICU together. And so the principle is you've got to figure out, okay, well, what do you like to do, right? Here's the principle. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually together. You know, divert daily is, well, can we figure out some way to connect daily? doesn't have to be sexually. Do we need to put our kids to bed at a decent hour and in a different room? <laughs> decent hour, different room. Okay, okay, done. Okay, then, okay, withdraw weekly. Do we have a Sabbath? Because Sabbath is about relating, first to God and then to those who matter most to us. So if we don't, we don't have to have any, that's, that's part of the, the, the rhythm of Sabbath is a grace for your marriage is what it is. And then, and then abandon annually. What do you like to do to get away? So my wife and I, we love, we haven't done this since COVID, but we love to go to New York City to see Broadway shows. Now, the first, it was her idea, but I went up there and I thought, well, what are we gonna do? Like, there's like one theater, like one show. I get up there, I'm like, there's like 30 theaters. And there's like three shows a day. And now we have a ton of fun. We go up there, we try to get the lottery tickets. We, 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 we make a plan, we have shows, we have restaurants. And we're also the crazy couple that goes to Disney without our kids. <laughs> Not for everybody, obviously. But yeah, the whole point is you're gonna have to figure out what is it that brings life into your marriage. You can't just have bad memories, you need to create 
the good memories. That's what they're committed to doing. And then in chapter 8, I won't read you the first six verses. Chapter 8, you can read those later. The first six verses, they just talk about affection in their marriage. I want to read you, starting in verse 6, they talk about the commitment, which is the, the fourth. So the first principle is forgiveness, not feelings. Second principle is, um, is uh, friendship, not physical. Third is grace, not grievances. And final one is very simple. I've talked about this already, but it's commitment, not circumstances. And so they are just committed. This is, again, they're ending with the language of covenant. Let me read it to you quickly. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. The seal was, it was your bank account and your credit card and your social security number all rolled into one, basically. It's the way that you did business personally and professionally. It's the linking of the personal with the permanent. That's what's going on there. He says this, or she says this, uh, for love is as strong as death. It's ahava love, love of the will. Then says this, jealousy. She uses the language of jealousy. Jealousy as fierce as the grave, it flash, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Basically, he said, uh, spouses should not be jealous of one another. That's unhealthy. Well, he always gets to. Well, she always gets to. Well, he has it easier. Well, she has it easier. That's jealous of my spouse. We want to be jealous for our spouses. That's what God is, right? God's not jealous of us. He's not up there in heaven going, I wish I was finite. You know? <laughs> no, he's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. He, what does it mean to be jealous for somebody? You want the best for them and the best from them. And every spouse should feel that about their spouse. That's how God feels. He wants us for himself. It's the language of commitment and jealousy. And then finally, look, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Basically, quotes the Beatles, can't buy me love, okay? Um, you can buy sex, can't buy love. It's this beautiful picture ending with commitment. What I want to do with a little bit of time we have left is I want to talk about, so in this series, we have talked a lot about the ideal, the ideal marriage, ideal commitment, ideal sexual relationship, ideal dating situation, ideal all of that, okay? And, and my fear and concern is that there are some people in our church who feel like maybe this series isn't for me. And there could be many reasons people think that. And I want to speak with our time left to four groups who their real feels much less than the ideal, okay? The first group I want to talk to is just the single people in our church. And when you think about single people, there's multiple types of single people. Obviously, I can't talk about every single person. But in our church, we've seen like kind of two groups of single people. There's the single people who are just like, they're right out of college and they're like super single and they're brand new single. Like they're a single adult and this is like a new stage of life for them. And they love this series. They're like, this is great. I'm going to apply all this. I hope to, you know, get married in the next couple of years. And I'm really excited and I'm glad we're doing this. So I can put all this stuff down about manhood and womanhood and marriage and commitment and dating and I got it. And they're loving it. And we have, you know, with our Wake Forest students and all that, we have just so many people in that stage. But we have another large group of people who are single and they've been single for a long time. And from what I'm hearing, this series is a little harder on them. Because they're like, well, I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want friendship and companionship. I want sexual intimacy. But, it, but I'm whatever age and it hasn't happened. And as I look around, the prospects don't look very bright right now. And what we want to say is we, don't, we view singleness primarily as a, as a stewardship from God, not something to be sad about and not a sickness. It, it's, it's a unique season. For some people, it's a longer season than they wish it was. And what we want to do, and we're trying to do this, and I know many families are doing this in the church, is we want to engraft the single people in our church into the life of our church as well into the life of individual families within our church. The church is a family of families. That's what the church is. And so we want to just say to all the single people, no matter how long you've been single or why you find yourself single again, we want to walk with you. And, and again, we still pray and hope that, because I know most single people, they want to get married, that that would happen. I told you, three most exciting things people tell me. You know, someone came to Christ, that's number one. Number two, we're pregnant, great. Number three, he asked me to marry him. That's a great. Those are great. We love celebrating those good news. Second category people want to talk to is people who struggle with same-sex attraction, Okay. Now, here's how I need you to think about same-sex attraction. Same-sex attraction, all of us are sexually broken. There's not one person in here who isn't sexually broken. There's not one person in here who's not a sexual sinner. There's not one person in here who doesn't have sexually disordered desires. And what we're finding, though, is that from the best studies I could find, about 11% of Americans say at some point in their life they've struggled with same-sex attraction. It may have been just for a few weeks. A lot of times it's just with one person. 
when we're talking about same-sex attraction, I want you to hear it in four categories. There is desire, orientation, identity, and activity. I know I've been talking a lot today, but this is important. So there's desire. Desire means it showed up for a season in my life. A lot of times what will happen is men, this, I'm stereotyping, but this is true, men who have a feminine personality that's, low in, that's, that's high in agreeableness and high in neuroticism. They're very easygoing and they're very sensitive to negative emotion. They feel much closer to women. And so what happens, here's the principle, what is exotic becomes erotic. What feels different than me, I'm attracted to. And so you'll meet men, women too, I'm sure, but I've met men in my life who for a season, as they were growing up, they felt like they met a man that was very different than them. And they didn't know what to do about that and they felt attracted. There's another category of people who they would call it an orientation. What is an orientation? An orientation is it's not going away. Here's how I want us to understand same-sex attraction for our brothers and sisters in Christ who said, I feel like I'm struggling with this. I don't want to give in to it. I'm saying no to it. Here's what I want you to think about same-sex attraction as an unanswered prayer request. Have you ever had an unanswered prayer request? Every Christian has. Have you ever asked God to take something away and it hasn't gone away? Have you ever asked God to do something and it didn't happen? You have to understand that when you're talking to somebody and they're a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian in our church and they're struggling with same-sex attraction, they are struggling with an unanswered prayer request. And, and what happens is a lot of times we think, well, here's a Bible verse. It's like, well, how are you doing with all the Bible verses in your area that struggles? It doesn't, I mean, it helps, obviously. We need to be with truth. But some of you are, are giving into the same temptations of sinful anger, and you know all the verses. It's not that easy. So the goal was, so let me say another thing. What we can't do is we can't go into identity or activity. A Christian cannot embrace a gay identity, an LGBTQ identity, or LGBTQ activity. Identity is, woo I'm coming out of the closet. This is me. This is what's important about me. I need everybody here to celebrate this about me. Well, we can't do that. Our identity is in Christ. And we also, of course, in light of that all, we can't do any of the activity. But here's how we need to think of, because this is a conversation the church has been having for a long time. How do we think about, what is the goal for same-sex attracted people? The goal is holiness, not heterosexuality. So I've seen both. I have seen godly men. I've more, more interacted with men. I've seen godly men who just say, I'm going to... It's not going away. I have no desire for a woman, and I'm choosing a life of celibacy. And I'm saying no to this temptation. I have seen other godly men who they met some woman, and God transformed and changed their desires, and they are happily married to a woman and sexually fulfilled in that relationship. We can't promise one or the other. We say the goal is not heterosexuality. The goal is holiness. Two final categories uh, and these last two, I've already, I've given whole messages on divorce and remarriage in Malachi, so you'll have to go back and listen to all that. But I just want to say something to the divorce people, because I've had several divorce people talk to me. Divorce is an event, not an identity. Understand that. That's how we view divorce here. Divorce is an event. In fact, that's how you, that's how some of you describe it. It happened to me! That's what you'll say. Okay, it's an event, it's not an identity. Does the Bible say God hates divorce? Yes. But he doesn't hate the divorcee. Okay? Guess who else hates divorce? Divorced people, for sure. Talk to them. And so what we want to say is, hey, we want to come around our divorced brothers and sisters who find themselves single again, and it's always sad, and it's always a result of sin. But may not, may not, may not be your sin. But if you're in a divorce, it's all, if, if you're divorced, it's always sad. It's always a result of sin. And what we want to say is the answer is not calculus, but community. The answer is not a formula, but a church family. And we want to walk with you. And it's, here, how, I, can't, I preached a whole sermon on this. If I could say it in a nutshell, we believe there are biblical grounds for divorce in Scripture. We believe there are biblical grounds for remarriage in Scripture. But it needs to be done in the context of a godly biblical community. Finally, remarriage. Now, this is what's interesting. We've got, we're seeing more and more people experience remarriage. 40% of marriages in America today, one of the persons at least, is, is, it's their second marriage. So more and more and more people are getting remarried. I don't have a Bible verse for this, but from all that I've seen and all that I've studied, I would say if you are divorced and considering remarriage, you want to have at least a two to three year gap in between moving on to any kind of new relationship. I'll see this all the time, and it's slightly strange to me, but I get it. You'll see people who are separated. They're not even officially divorced yet, and they start dating somebody else. 
I've talked to people before, and they say, well, my lawyer told me I could do this. I've gotten that answer. What I'm doing is not wrong legally. Well, it, it, listen, I've had to think about this. Why do people do that? Because they're lonely. Because they're getting old. Because they feel like the window's closing for it to happen again. We understand all of that. But we need, to, we need to handle this biblically. We need to handle this theologically because if we don't handle this theologically, guess what? It gets very circumstantial and very emotional very quickly. So we want to walk with you guys together. All this points us back to Christ, right? This whole message, who is Jesus but the one who chose to forgive instead of do what he felt, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made the decision, I'm not going to do what I feel. I'm going to do what leads to forgiveness. And he's our great model of that. You would not be able to have a relationship with Jesus if all he focused on was your past grievances, not the future grace he wants to give you. And if it wasn't for Jesus' commitment to us, if we were dependent on circumstance changes in our lives, we wouldn't be able to have a relationship with him. And so I want to bring this all down for every married person here. I want to ask a question that I think is going to, could be a door to open up to you, transpersonal transformation and change. And maybe you don't talk to your spouse about this. You just journal about it yourself. But here's the question. Because I know some of you have been here today and you're like, I'm so glad my spouse is here. This is, this is awesome. She needs to hear this. He needs to hear this. Here's the question I leave you with. What's it like to be married to you? What's it like to be on the other side of you? What's it like to be your spouse? And, and here, here's the question. If you're also a mom or dad, here's the gut-wrenching question to ask. Would I, if, you're, if you're a husband, would I want my daughter to have this marriage? Would I want someone to treat my daughter the way I'm treating my wife? If you're a mom... Would I want my son to have this marriage? The way I treat and talk to my husband, would I want my future daughter-in-law doing that to the son whom I love? See, the transformation happens when we just decide we're going to focus on ourselves. We're going to trust God. We can't play JV Holy Spirit. We've got to let the Holy Spirit work on our spouse. We're going to go and we're going to say, when we go home, I'm about forgiveness, not feelings. I'm about good memories, not bad memories. I'm about grace, not grievances. I'm about friendship, not the physical. I'm about commitment, not circumstances. Why? Because somebody else has already done that for me, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just end by thinking about King Solomon. As we read some of the last words he wrote, we're reminded that King Solomon didn't live this out himself. And in fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he has an enormous amount of regret over his life. The book of Ecclesiastes, in some ways, is an old man's regret where he confesses that his life was about too much women, too much work, and too much wine. And now he's old and tired and full of regret. May that not be said of us, Lord. Help us, no matter if we've been married days or decades, to build our marriage on the things that do not change. We thank you that you have built our relationship on the things that do not change, the gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We ask all this in his name.